Welcome to the SCOM podcast. This is our security and compliance podcast created by Quarter Cloud. I'm Kelly and I work at the marketing department. And I'm Phil from the technical team. And we're going to take you through all our technology in a really interesting way. Phil Talks Technical, where I keep it lighthearted with a selection of exciting guest speakers. Let's delve in. In this episode, we'll be talking to Richard Stainings and his thoughts on sponsored cyber attacks. In just the past year, these attacks have included a long list of crippling ransomware campaigns that have disabled almost the entirety of national health systems to the near bankruptcy of several large private US health systems to causing med- small medical and dental practices to have to close up shop. This has denied critical medical services to thousands of patients and contributed to increases in patient morbidity and mortality. Let's learn more on this very important topic. Thank you so much, Richard, for joining us today on the podcast with me and Phil. Um, Could you, for the audience who haven't heard from you yet or heard us on our podcast, give us a bit of an introduction on yourself, a bit of a history and how you've ended up at Silera? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Richard Stainings. I'm Chief Security Strategist with Silera. Obviously, I'm a Brit. You can tell from the accent here, but I live the other side of the pond and have done for the last 30 odd years. Um, I joined Silera about three and a half years ago. Um, as the company, or just before the company uh, was launched, essentially, um, into the public space, it had been in development for a number of years in, in stealth mode, um, which amazed me that uh, the, the founders had, had actually decided to build a solution that worked 100% before they launched it on everyone, in stark contrast to a lot of other startups yeah. out there. Um, but I was approached uh, by uh, a former uh, employee of mine at another company who uh, had, had been introduced to these guys. And he said, would you spend half an hour with the three founders of Which Silera? Which said last night lasted a lot longer. It lasted, yeah, pretty close to three <laughs> hours. Yeah. You know? It was supposed to be just a meet and greet and, you know, a a quick run over of the company, what it did, and for me to you know vet out his decision to go join uh, the company. And in actuality, uh, we ended up you know talking for three hours. We dug into you know the business plans, their financing, their backing, their approach, uh, what they were uh, hoping to accomplish. Um, and uh, I got into about the third sub basement mm-hmm. of the technology with uh, with with the CTO in terms of how uh, how the application was coded, how it was protecting data, what sort of security controls it had in place, and how it was interfacing with existing security tools. And one of the things that really amazed me was the fact, well, there were two things, really. One was the use of modern technology like AI and ML that have been integrated into the system and digital twin technology, which, of course, is very important for uh, vulnerability assessing uh, critical devices like medical devices, right, yeah. which you, you can't take out. And then um, – so the second feature was the fact that they had developed this um, in conjunction with academic medical centers. Yes. And it actually sat down with customers, potential customers of the Silera platform, and uh, asked them what they wanted in a solution here. Mm-hmm. So instead of trying to fit a square peg in a round hole yeah. by going off and developing a solution in isolation, yeah. they actually sat down and listened to potential customers and uh, made their work workflows fit uh, the Silera workflows fit the workflows of of the hospital systems yeah and that Phil is a, a reason why we loved it right it was fit for purpose and your background in the NHS yeah, you, yeah. It, you it was, yeah it was laid out clearly you could see what you needed to see and you know especially within the NHS you want to make sure that you're you know able to get to the kind of root of the issues quickly um, and I, I think that was absolutely key and again it's accuracy and identifying things as well was very very key 
because um, you know there's really a lot of really kind of bespoke and unknown operating systems and very niche devices. And obviously they were the first ones that I was looking for when I was going through the, the platform going, and what's it seen this as, what's this as? And especially as we uh, we, we went from the demo, demo system, which again was leaps and bounds above everything else, uh, went, to, went to our first customer and I was like, oh, this is even more interesting. And there was loads of categories that again weren't in the demo system because it was a real environment. And just, just that level of detail, people kind of go, hang on, is this all one device I'm looking at? I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is one device. You know, as you really can draw into what the device is doing when it's in use and, you know, everything that you kind of, need to know to be able to support and maintain it i guess it's good yeah it's a it's a very very detailed um asset inventory that the silera tool pulls mm-hmm. together a very detailed profile is generated for that tool much more detailed than anything else in the space yeah um and it's dynamic and ongoing so it's not a static yeah. point in time okay. uh inventory of assets uh, medical device assets for example that connect to your network um it's ongoing and it's continuing to learn as devices maybe up receive an upgrade, yeah. an upgrade, an update, um, or a patch, yeah. um, and as new devices are added or retired from the uh, network. Which we were discussing last night would have happened quite a lot during COVID. Like a lot of stuff would have got plugged in and then probably is now in a storage cupboard somewhere and might still be connected to the network, right? Yeah, or it's it's powered off, so it doesn't yeah. show up as a connected asset right now. But we know where that asset was at some point, right? We know it was. Like when that asset was last switched on, it was in this part of a hospital, um, in this ward, yeah. attached to this patient, um, yeah. based upon the the information that we, we we have in the profile there. Obviously, we don't keep PHI information, but we keep you know record information there. Uh, so we can, we can know we know where to go to start to look for it. Right? Um, we can look at uh, the uh, Cisco wireless access point that the device last reported to. If it's a wireless device, mm-hmm. and we know through the Cisco tools where that uh, where that device was located in a in a hospital system. So we've obviously discussed what Silera does and how that helps, but if anyone is working within the healthcare sector or if they're just finding this podcast of interest, what cyber threats are on the horizon and why what should we be considering what when protecting hospitals right now? So hospitals are one of 16 critical infrastructure industries, right? Um along with power distribution, nuclear yeah. regulatory, um, oil, gas, chemical, you name it, right? Water. Um, water, yeah. That's a uh, scary one. That always scares y- me when anyone says, oh, what happens to cyber attack? Or water management, right? Yeah. What, ha- what happens when dams are messed yeah. with, right? Yeah, no, and thank you. And dams release uh, yeah. know, millions and billions of gallons of water right. uh, down down valley. We've all watched uh, dam busters, you know, um, and uh, can see the sort of damage that, that dams can do. So there, there's a lot of critical infrastructure industries out there. Healthcare is perhaps the... One of the most critical of all of them because uh, there is a patient safety dynamic, a, a patient morbidity, patient mortality aspect to uh, securing um, healthcare information security or healthcare cybersecurity. Um, when healthcare is hacked, um, mm. patient safety is is compromised. Right. Now, whether that's a long-term interruption and availability attack mm-hmm. to data – um, which uh, the NHS obviously suffered in 2017 with WannaCry attacks, um, that that obviously had negative, a very negative impact on the patient morbidity, patient mortality of uh, of patients across those trusts that were negatively impacted. Some trusts got away uh, scot free in terms of WannaCry. Um, yeah. They were well prepared. They were patched. They'd retired old equipment, um, or they were well protected. They had firewalls in place to prevent traffic coming in on the ports that were being used uh, yeah. by the Eternal Blue um, hack that was essentially the basis of, uh, of WannaCry. 
So healthcare is it would be a target for a nation state actor and okay. we are obviously in a heightened state of security preparedness right now given the conflict that's going on uh, in Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. Uh Russia is perhaps the world's best um or the most the world's most experienced actor in cyber warfare. Okay. Uh they honed their skills back in the 1990s with the first Chechenian war um, by by using hybrid warfare, kinetic and cyber, uh, to launch their attack against uh, Chechenian uh, separatists. Mm-hmm. Uh, they then honed those skills again in the second Chechenian war uh, some years later, and they did it in Georgia, South Ossetia. They've been doing it against Ukraine. Um, and they are attacking critical infrastructures uh, across the, their adversaries, uh, in order to bully, intimidate, warn mm-hmm. um, th- their neighbors in that space. Um, and they've been doing that in Ukraine since 2015. So there's been a succession of cyber attacks against the power networks, right? The electrical distribution systems, electrical generator systems, hospitals, um, other critical infrastructure components of Ukraine to kind of coerce Ukraine into a more subservient uh, Russian sphere of influence as its people demanded a closer tie with Europe and perhaps even NATO. Right? Yeah. So healthcare would be a target of any Russian aggression um, and is also an incidental target to broadcast type attacks that we're seeing from you know the Russian crime syndicates that launched that are responsible for most of the the ransomware and other cyber extortion campaigns that are run against uh, industries and businesses worldwide and you know don't forget not Petya which is the singly most destructive cyber attack in global history uh, resulted in a whole load of you know fortune 500 companies being taken down and billions of dollars of damage somewhere between 10 and 12 billion dollars is the, the the current <laughs> estimate of the damages caused by that not petya was executed by the russian gru i think it was called the sandworm group within the russian gru which is a military intelligence uh cyber unit of uh of russia um, it launched that against a ukrainian software company called medoc right medoc uh, that was used for financial accounting and tax uh, right. purposes, and uh, in so doing, the the Russians intended to you know take down the uh, Ukrainian business economy. But in actuality, a lot of multinational companies, including Russian companies, We're did business with Ukraine and used Medoc in order to file their taxes. So it was a bit of a home goal for the Russians because uh, NotPetya ended up taking out quite a few uh, Russian businesses as well as, you know, um, uh, Merck Pharmaceuticals, Merck Shipping, um, FedEx, TNT, um, and a whole heap of other global companies. Do you think they would have known that they just didn't think that was going to happen? I, I think it was a backfire. Yeah, it was yeah. it was something that they hadn't really thought through. <laughs> I was doing some research into how much the kind of public sector was getting hit, and the government's done um, a cybersecurity strategy report, and they did a, did an analysis around September twenty for a year around, and they had seven hundred and seventy seven incidents reported to the National Cybersecurity Centre. And 40% of those were aimed at the public sector, which I thought was actually quite a lot. If you think about it, you know, they're, they're actually targeting those kind of areas. Um, and when you have a look at, you know, I know we're talking about securing medical devices, but even talking about how these people are getting in, if you look at a simple thing like the attack in Ireland that happened, which is kind of even more recent than WannaCry, that all kicked off because of a single phishing email. 
And again, once once somebody's in, they're inside looking at your systems. And because of, again, these medical devices all being interconnected for your electronic patient records, you know, they're all online. So again, even if they don't start off at a medical device, they know the value of the medical data and they're going to start pivoting and seeing what's there. So you really want to make sure you're kind of something like Silera that can understand when there is malicious communications. I know one of the examples that I often use when I'm using the demo portal in Silera is it, it's picking up malicious file transfers onto a medical device, you know, and again, as well as alerting firmware and what the device is doing, it's going to show you, you know, if there's any malicious communications to and from that device as well. So just, yeah, just really, really key, really. But it was a higher percentage than I was thinking it was going to be when I was when I was looking at it. And I think it comes down to the types of attacks that we're seeing, right? So there, there's really two different types of attacks. One is a broadcast attack where malware is basically sent out to en masse, uh, hoping that someone will click on a link or open a open a uh, an attachment, mm. and, and a machine can be infected that way. And others are more targeted attacks at specific corporations. And I think what we're seeing is the uh, criminal actors doing the majority of the broadcasting type attacks, right? Mm-hmm. The Russian mafia, the organized crime syndicates, um, and the Russian state is targeting, is making specifically targeted attacks, like the Solar Winds attack, for example, right? Yeah. It knew that Solar Winds was installed um, in the majority of uh, U.S. federal offices, yeah. uh, departments and agencies and therefore it was a good way into those systems the same way with the hafnium attack that came out of china again it was targeting exchange servers knowing that those exchange servers were used by specific actors that Mm. were probably on someone's target list right yeah not that china hasn't already stolen everything that's connected to the internet today but uh, (laughs) pretty close to anyway and that's the thing that everything's really quite sophisticated from that level. But jumping back to your point about that simple phishing attack, I think it made me think, you know, when we were at Rewired and they were talking about the lighting within the ambulance um, because people get tired and they're doing a 1am shift and they were changing the lighting interior. You can see how easy in the healthcare industry, because you're under pressure, aren't you? You're looking after patients. You could be working shift work, not great hours, that you could make a mistake by clicking something quite innocently, really. Like, I think if you think about it, nine to five, normal job, you could do it. If you've got the added pressure of all those additional parts within the healthcare, I can imagine... Well, Unfortunately, it's an easy target, isn't it? It's not just tiredness. Imagine stress being a factor yeah. in that as well. Imagine you're an ER doctor and you're receiving, you know, you're dealing with Friday night road traffic accidents that right. are filling up your emergency room. Um, and you're also checking email off of your iPhone, right? Or you're even worse, an Android phone, right? Yeah. Android's a lot, lot less secure than an iPhone. Um, and you see things there and you inadvertently click on it. You don't get a chance to look at the no. email header to validate. The, you can't uh, see it often, can you? You can't see no. the whole URL on a phone. You only see the end bit and they know that. They cut it down so that you can only see the bit right. they want you to see almost. So they're almost targeting the mobility that we use in day-to-day activity. Imagine, you know, checking a, an email on your uh, your watch, your Apple I watch. I do that all the time. Yeah. And text. Uh, and you don't see anything there on a watch. You just see the message, right? No, and yeah, text text messages come through all the time on on as well, like you know, right. submissions. Right. So there's lots of different ways that you can get targeted. So yeah, I think healthcare is there's so many added additional reasons of of, of things that you need to consider. So, yeah. what do you think those in the industry need to be aware of to to, to preserve digital healthcare systems? 
So, you know, when we talk about protecting healthcare, we talk about protecting the confidentiality, yeah. integrity, and availability of health inf- of information systems and health data, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say at this point, confidentiality is already lost. Most of our uh, medical records have been exposed. Okay. You know, I'm sure you know you and I have both suffered credit cards that have been compromised. I don't and think had I to, have. Well, you must be the only person left in the world who hasn't had to have their credit card replaced, other than perhaps my mother. But no, I don't. I don't think I. I know my dad definitely has. He got right. people here on flights. Yeah. But no, I don't. Touching all the wood, I don't think I have. Not right. that I'm aware of, but yeah. But there are huge databases out there on the dark web of your information. You can Google yourself and you can figure out what information has actually been stolen from Mm. what sources or from approximated sources and understand what's out there. I I would say that we've largely lost that bottle. I mean, it's not to say that we should give up and stop protecting confidentiality. We most certainly should try to protect that information. But that's not as critical as protecting the integrity of health data. Now, imagine... I'm going in for an operation tomorrow. I go in for a a, a pre-operation check with my uh, my uh, physician today. Mm-hmm. I get my blood cross matched. Uh, I'm, I complete all kinds of surveys to my medical history. Yep. My allergies are recorded, including my including my deadly aversion to certain drugs, right? right? Like penicillin, for yep. example. Right yep. now, imagine if my blood type is recorded and it's hacked and changed. Right, and I may be AB negative, but my blood type has changed to uh, B positive. Right, right. Um, my allergies, including penicillin, are removed from my medical uh, file. I go in for surgery. Um, they give me a blood top up uh, afterwards, based upon the blood type that's in my medical record. They give me the wrong blood. Yeah, I have a transfusion reaction because I'm being given the wrong yeah. blood. Right, they uh, the doctor incorrectly. Uh, identifies that as perhaps a transfusion reaction in infected blood. They give me penicillin to clear up the infection in the blood. And before you know it, I'm coding on the table, right? So clinical decisions are based upon the validity and the integrity of medical data that clinicians have access to. So if the integrity of that data is compromised, then patient safety is severely impacted. Now, the final area is really availability, and we saw that in WannaCry, right? Mm -hmm. What happens when HIT systems are not available, right? We now live in a world of highly interconnected, um, highly technologically enabled healthcare, yeah. Right. Um, doctors don't, you know, take your temperature anymore, or nurses don't take your temperature anymore and send you home with aspirin. Right? They sit down and do full diagnosis of yeah. what your condition might be, what symptoms you're exhibiting, and they prescribe courses of treatment. And they do that using various health health IT programs, various medical devices, mm-hmm. and a whole heap of other systems that are now at their disposal. You compare a hospital visit now with one back in the 1960s, for example. Right? Yep. Very different experience today. Now, when those systems go down, most doctors and nurses, unless they're, they've been in the space since the 1960s and 1970s, wouldn't know what to they do. wouldn't know what to do. Um, it's very difficult for nurses, for example, to return to paper-based charting uh, because they've no experience of it. We may train them once a year how to fill out a paper chart, right? but mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't know instinctively how to do that. Um, and where we've done um, incident response business continuity tests at hospital systems, a majority of hospitals, particularly younger clinical staff, have felt miserably in that space. I did one in the Pacific Northwest of the United States several years ago, and every one of the facilities I, uh, I looked at, including a, a teaching hospital that was very well trained, 
uh, failed miserably in their business continuity plans, apart from one clinic, which was on, on, on an island in Alaska. <laughs> and the internet went down on this particular island at least twice a week. So, so the nurses were incredibly adept at, at switching over to paper-based charting and then entering that information back in into IT systems when the, IT, when the systems came back up. So there's two components. One is the ability to cope and to continue service, and the other is to enter data into the, into the medical record once systems are, are back up and running again. So we're concerned about confidentiality, integrity, and availability in healthcare. I mean, I know what I'm just like when the electricity goes in my own house. Right. So I can't imagine, like, how, you know, when you look at everything and you're like, I can't make a cup of tea. And yet, so right. I can't imagine, like, being in a hospital and it all goes because you'd just be there like oh oh what am I doing so I mean Phil you did go through it with WannaCry was is that a fair representation of what happened people with paper and things like I know it didn't happen at Bolton but I know you you did go and help in other hospitals yeah I mean the hospitals we went to help in they were literally rebuilding PCs there were signs on the PCs people running around not knowing what patients were where obviously not being able to move patients and that stops you being able to discharge them so they couldn't even free the beds up to get the patients in from the ambulances. So it was just, it's just a bit of a mess until people work on the contingencies. I think it's certainly got people's attention. I think out, out of it, yes, it came attention on IT, but also people realised, hang on, we actually do have to have a proper working contingency to these things. So I think that was a big improvement that came out of the back of it. Um, I know another hospital that had an incident about a year after Wanna Cry, and it was a completely different type of thing. What happened is they lost all power and the backup generators didn't work. So people were stuck in lifts and there was all sorts of power issues. So there was no computers because of power. And they had really good contingency. It worked really well. And I suspect that if WannaCry hadn't happened a year or two prior, that wouldn't have been the case. So, yeah, I think you've got to look at things both sides. haven't you? You've got to sort of sort your IT out, stop it happening, have a good contingency. Uh, yeah, and as, as, as I was saying, make sure you're protecting these devices. So do you think there were less... So you've really clearly actually nicely got into my next question was like, what lessons do you think were learned from WannaCry and how is that making advancements in medical devices and IoT? Well, you know, Phil just mentioned contingency planning and business continuity planning uh, and um, uh, business uh, continuity exercises, right? Mm -hmm. How to deal with security incidents, how to deal with, um, you know, loss of availability incidents. And I think uh, the the health system is in a much better situation as a result of that enhanced training and enhanced uh, capability and planning that's been built into it. Uh, But the root of the WannaCry problem was old, out-of-date equipment, right? Um, And inabilities to patch that equipment, right? We weren't doing a good enough job of going around patching old systems that could be patched Mm -hmm. um, or putting in compensating security controls for old systems that were not yet at end of life. Um, and couldn't be written off financially, uh, but could still be used. But they needed additional security controls like micro-segmentation, for example, isolation, enclaving, uh, which would have allowed some of the PAC systems uh, and RIS systems that were taken down by WannaCry to continue to operate, but to do so in an isolated fashion Mm -hmm. without um, potentially impacting the rest of the healthcare network. So you could have had some systems that were taken down, but not everything. everything. And the danger with WannaCry was that it was a it was a worm technology it uh, spread laterally across the network and infected you know thousands and thousands of machines i think as well it helped get the attention of the leadership within the nhs because previously if you'd have gone and said i need to protect these devices you, you might have got 
you'd have got the question, well, that's that's the cost of four nurses. Why are you doing that? Whereas now you say, well, you can see the impact of this. It is something that has to be balanced and addressed. So I think that on the back of this, there was a lot of kind of things that had maybe been put on the back burner that people were trying to do, but then it was given the attention that it required. And sometimes it unfortunately does take an incident for then an improvement to be made. Right. But how do you how do you place a cost? How do you place a, a, a value on the cost of life, right? Um, or the the cost of you know increased patient morbidity or patient mortality as a result of um, lack of investment in security or IT, right? You know, can you do that? Uh, what metrics do you use to quantify the value of a seventy-year-old versus the value of a forty-year-old, right? Um, it's it's very difficult to to build that into a spreadsheet and to therefore make rational financial decisions about whether you hire additional nurses, whether you hire or replace uh, aging medical equipment, yeah. um, whether you um, uh, buy down the um, the elective procedure backlog. Right by investing your money in in additional surgeries, for example, or additional consultants, or whether you spend that money on cybersecurity to make sure your existing patients or existing patient workflows are not negatively impacted by cyber breach. These are decisions that yeah, it's a balance. uh, It's a fine balance. I mean, as a cybersecurity professional, I would want really to have the best possible cybersecurity to protect the patients in my hospital. Right. Yeah. Uh, But uh, that plainly isn't you know, uh, the only concern that the uh, NHS has here, right? Yeah. There's a thing around budgets as well. I mean, I was reading a paper, it's a couple of years ago now, so the numbers may have changed slightly, but there was a recommendation that 3% of the trust turnover was put to IT. And I can tell you now that the most most trusts are nowhere near that. Um, and obviously, I think after WannaCry, it did increase a bit, so it did help and that allowed that additional spending. Um, but it's kind of only getting it the slice it needs to keep the clinics running efficiently, effectively. And sadly, it feels like something bad has to happen. Right. Something has to go wrong for people to then... I feel like we, we were having a conversation earlier about data backup, weren't we? And that seems to be the same thing. It's not since people were being fined or GDPR has been put in right. that actually it was a bit of a nice to have. And now it's like, oh, it's not such a nice to have. We do actually need to put it in. And right. it, it, sound, it sounds awful, but it seems from, from yeah... Speaking That's why the NHS got the DPI, you know, the privacy, you know, sorry, not DPI, the DSPT, you know, security but, and protection toolkit, obviously, so that they can make sure that that's one of the ways that they use to make sure that trusts are giving relevant parts of IT security the relevant attention. And Silera works really nicely with supporting the NHS, doesn't it, with the DSPT? There's some, some key elements that Silera help with that. Is it worth just touching on a bit of that of how, how it's in line with that, Phil? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's about 40 areas, but obviously the key one is that 9381, which is a mandatory one that says you've got to have a register of medical devices. Now, obviously right. that reg- that register can be a spreadsheet, sure thing. I mean, you can go around and manually do it, but it's going to be like painting the operator's bridge, like I've said before. By the time you get to the end, you'll be back at the beginning, and it's never going to be accurate. Whereas obviously something like Silera gives you that inventory accurate on that day with all your vulnerabilities. And, you're, and we saw in recent NHS trusts that you've run Silera on, we're not talking about a couple of hundred are we we're talking eight to ten thousand at least that's at a least. big spreadsheet right. to keep on top of like some people have that and it's not right and when you look at it and, they'll, and they come on and they're looking at going i don't know what that is i don't know what that is you know and, and things like end of life operating system you're never going to be able to work that out by looking at a medical device because it looks like a medical device so how are you going to work that out without pulling it apart and you're not even allowed to do that 
So we've done we've done asset inventories of you know large hospital systems um, right the way you know across the world essentially. Yeah. Um, and one particular example, early example that we came across, um, the spreadsheets uh, had about thirty five thousand assets on their network, and they were off by an order of magnitude. When we plugged in Silera, we found three hundred and fifty thousand <gasps> assets that were connected to the network. So plainly, those spreadsheets were out of date. Um, they hadn't been updated. The firmware versions and systems that were listed on the spreadsheet were often inaccurate. Um, and I think the value that Silera brings is that it's a real-time dynamic asset inventory. Yeah. So it will record what's on the network at any point in time. It will also give you historical information of what has been attached to the network for the last three months or six months, right? Mm -hmm. Because medical devices are powered on as they're needed. They're powered off and put back on a shelf, right? Yeah. Um, Particularly, you know, portable devices, right? Obviously, no one's going to power off a CT scanner or an X-ray machine for three months. Uh, They're in use every day. But there are a lot of patient telemetry systems, patient monitoring systems, uh, patient treatment systems that are needed uh, that are used as needed, right? And we yeah. saw that with uh, COVID, with ventilators being moved around, uh, respirators, with all kinds of other different equipment, infusion pumps, for example. Uh, and um, a lot of assets were loaned to other hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of assets were drawn out of uh, state reserves, mm-hmm. um, government reserves. Um, and a lot of... Um, uh, assets were, you know, were lost in the shuffle, right? And now we need to know where those assets are. So having an accurate inventory of your assets, what you own, what you have access to, is not only critical from a DSPT perspective, it's also critical for a, a fiscal financial management perspective to know, you know, what you have at your disposal. Of course, because you'd end up buying duplications of machines exactly. that you have or, exactly. or you think you've got or not. So that's a big difference, though, 35000 yeah. that's, that's huge. That's a huge, huge one. So I think we've started talking about asset management, but there's a few more other benefits, isn't there? Um, so could you just tell us a little bit more about that and how you're helping hospitals in that sense with the asset management? Yeah, so obviously we know... We know what assets are, right? Um, we know what risks they present, but we also know the utilization of assets, right? Mm-hmm. We know that um, perhaps the uh, x-ray system in the emergency room is used 98% of the time, 24 mm-hmm. by 7, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that other x-ray machines and other parts of the hospital may be used 50% of the time or 40% right. of the time, right? Yeah. Um, and we're able to identify those assets so that um, hospital administrators can adjust their workflows to underutilized assets yep. to free up overutilized assets for ma- uh, vital maintenance windows for patching, for servicing, uh, for maintenance tasks. Um, and we've been able to assist a number of hospitals to defer large capital outlays right. uh, for big, expensive medical device equipment. Some of these things are, you know, thirty million pounds, fifty million pounds, right? Yeah, they're not cheap. Uh, and if you are running. Uh, at 98% capacity in your emergency room, for example, uh, and you've got a line out the door on a Friday night for people that need an X-ray or a CT or something like that, um, the, the evidence that presents itself says, hey, we need to drop another £30 million on a new... It new, gives a business case. It yeah, gives it's validation. a business case, right? Yeah. Because you've got, you've got lines out the door, right? Um, what we were able to do is to identify uh, an outpatient clinic across the street from the emergency room and to redirect the walking wounded from the emergency room 
across the street and then use the um, x-ray systems, CT systems in the emergency center mm-hmm. uh, for those patients who were on a, you know, brought in on a, on a, a gurney, right, yeah. uh, that were not able to, to move across the uh, hospital grounds. In so doing, we're able to cut wait times, we're able to free up space yeah. in our waiting rooms, which is a major concern in COVID pandemic, of course. Yeah. Um, and of, of course, we're able to defer large capital outlays, money that can be used for cybersecurity, perhaps, or for uh, the restoration and catch-up of elective surgeries mm-hmm. or other high-priority tasks where that money would be far better spent. So this topic, I think we could keep on talking, but Richard, you're in demand today, so you need you need to dash um, uh, off to another speaking gig. So just to conclude the podcast, because hopefully we'll see you very soon again and we, right. can, we can do another one. Is there any advice, not just within healthcare but I know that's where you special in but but any businesses that would want to improve their cybersecurity and their IoT and medical devices are there any key tips that you would to look at straight away um, I would say the adoption of a cybersecurity framework uh, as part as the fundamental basis of your cybersecurity management plan is critical right whether mm-hmm. you're following ISO 27001 27002 whether you're following the NIST cybersecurity framework which is getting a very strong foothold internationally yeah. across the healthcare space because of its ability to adapt and and uh, expand to the nuances of, of healthcare um, or even you know the CISCSC is a framework right um a framework provides for holistic security. And yep. what I've seen in my 30 years in the space is that um, a lot of institutions uh, spend their entire budget on the world's most impregnable front door, right? The most expensive firewalls, the, yep. the best biometric authentication systems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, not spending money on simple simple tasks, right? Day-to-day security tasks. Yep. They haven't put in the window locks that are necessary on, yeah. in the building or haven't repaired the lock, the broken lock on the back door. Right? Yeah. So you've got to keep your eye on the ball. You've got to make sure that security is holistic and all-encompassing. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to good security governance. You need the right people, the right process, the right technologies in place um, in order to ensure that your your uh, organization is uh, does not become a target or a victim for um, for a cyber attack. 